morning. Let's see how this goes. Um, not the preach, the microphone, sorry, that doesn't fill you with confidence. Um, I am going to start with a little bit of advice um, for any of you blokes out there. If you're uh, wondering how your bald spot's coming along, can I recommend sitting about four rows back in the center aisle because you get a great view of it all throughout the worship. So, uh, in a beautiful technicolor, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, today, we are in John. We're going to continue our series in John. So, we're in John 2, uh, following on from the wedding in Cana, not the wedding yesterday. Uh, we're going to go from John 2, verse 12 to verses 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you were going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So a, a few weeks ago, uh, Dan gave us the intro to the book of John, and he took us through those great verses at the beginning um, that talks about Jesus, and it's looking at Jesus' divinity, looking at the fact that Jesus was God. Um, and we see John stating there that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And as Dan helpfully explained to us, actually, it, it, that opening statement, it's a bit like a trailer, it's John setting out at the beginning of the book, look, Jesus is God, and this, the rest of the book, is why we believe that. And so when we're looking at these verses, when we're looking at this chapter, we need to realize that what John's trying to communicate is he's trying to communicate that Jesus is God, and how we see that then in this passage. This, this isn't just... Um, it isn't just like a Jesus-Hulk crossover where Jesus smashed. It's not just like this fun episode where the disciples remember, oh, you know, Jesus kicked over some tables. Actually, John's trying to show us in this incident, in, in this moment, he's trying to show us that Jesus is God. And so when we're unpacking it today, that is what we're going to be looking at. We're looking at how does this point us to Jesus? And so there's three sections of this passage um, that we're going to look at, and I've worked hard on these titles. So, the first one is clearing the courts. The second one is architectural arguments. And the third one is obvious omniscience. <laughs> that took me a while. Yeah, I know. 
That's another big word for you, Paul. <laughs> um, so we're going to look at clearing the courts first. So this is verses 12 to 17. And so I'll just read it again. It helps to have it fresh in our minds. And so after he, this, he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is Jesus clearing the temple courts. So he's left the countryside and he's gone up to the city, he's gone up to the temple for the Passover. And as he's gone into the temple, he's confronted by livestock, cows, sheep, doves in cages. It's a market. People are, you know, trying to sell their wares, you know, one sheep for a five or two sheep for eight. It's, you know, they're all shouting out, this is noisy, this is loud, and, and Jesus responds to it. So I think there are, there are two questions to look at and focus on. Uh, one is, why were people selling animals? It's good to understand, actually, what's going on. A market just didn't spring up in the temple. There's a reason people are selling animals there. And then why was Jesus angry about it? Why did he respond in this way? So we're going to go through a bit of context, I'm afraid, so I'll be here for a while. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a sacrificial system. So you come to worship God, you come to the temple, especially at big festivals like the Passover, animals were required for sacrifice. That was part of the worship. That was part of atonement. It was part of how the Jewish people related to God. Now, if you were sacrificing an animal to God, there were conditions on that animal. That animal had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish. That was to kind of stop you going, you know, you've got that runty sheep or the one with three legs or the one that's poorly. It's to stop you just getting rid of those ones and the sacrifice not really meaning anything. It's about giving meaning to the sacrifice that your sheep is in a pretty good condition. Or cow. Um, and so... If you are heading up to Jerusalem to sacrifice your animal, you've got to travel there with those animals. And so, for example, if you were coming from Upper Galilee, that's 100 miles to get to Jerusalem. So you've got to take your good condition sheep 100 miles to Jerusalem. And without comparing sheep and children too much, I, uh, I'm more expert in, in child than I am in uh, sheep. But I figure it's a bit like having children. The condition your child leaves the house is not necessarily the condition your child arrives at the destination. Um, a, a child that is well-dressed will suddenly, by the time you get somewhere, uh, have found food down the back of the car seat and put it in their hair and they'll have lost a sock and a shoe. It, it's, your child is no longer without blemish when you get there. Um, and so I imagine livestock are pretty much the same after a, a walked 100-mile journey. So you don't just take one good sheep. You take a few because you need backup. Because 100 miles of walking in the wilderness, there's wolves, there's mess, there's things, you know, people can get, uh, people, sheep can get injured. There's no guarantee it will turn up perfect. So you have to take a bunch of sheep. Then on the road, you have to find places to stay. You have to 
potentially pay to keep them in a paddock. I don't know where you keep sheep. Um, but you have to look after them on the way. So this, this is a huge hassle, really. And to some degree, it's a little bit of a gamble because you could lose all of your sheep along the way and then you turn up at the temple and you've got nothing. So plan B is the market at the temple. You can save up a bit of money, maybe sell a few of those blemish-free sheep and take that money to the temple where you can find a market selling perfect, blemish-free, pre-approved sheep at a slightly inflated price, but your animal is in sacrifice ready. <laughs> yeah, poor sheep. Um, and so actually, this is, this is a pretty good business idea. If you're one of those market stall holders, or in fact, you're one of the Jewish people going to the temple, it's not a bad plan. You, you save a lot of faff and, you know, you get your animal ready to go. So, Jesus isn't against a good business idea. That's what I just want to put out there. The, the business idea is good. It then kind of goes downhill from that point. So, I explain why it goes a little bit downhill. Um, in order to buy the animals in the temple, you needed to buy or exchange your money for temple currency because the Romans who were occupying the, city, the, the country at the time, their currency wasn't considered valid in the temple. It had the head of Caesar on it, and therefore the authorities considered that idolatry. And so you had to convert your money into temple money. This was done at a slightly inflated exchange rate in which the religious leaders took a decent cut um, and so, all of a sudden, this sheep is going up in price. Um, not just that, the, um, the market stalls, they were rented out at, again, a decent price, which went to the temple leaders as well. And again, this bumped up the prices. You were inflating the price for the sheep. Now, all of a sudden, you are increasing the price of livestock, and people have come along and they have no real option. If they've not brought their own sheep, you've only got this monopoly of very expensive, I'm sorry, I'm limiting it to sheep, sheep, cows, doves, um, all of them are suddenly inflated in price. This is, it's quite, it's quite hard to understand sometimes, but Jesus gets angry at this. I'm going to use a little bit of an example. I've pre-selected Sam to come up here and, and help, partly because being an introvert, when anybody says we need a volunteer, I cower behind the chair in front of me. So Sam, I um, bullied you into it to start off with. Um, so we're just going to play out a hypothetical. Thankfully for Sam, you don't really have to say much or do much, just bear with. Um, we'll see. But the hypothetical is this. To give you guys a bit of an idea, you've come to church on a Sunday. I'm a member of the welcome team. Sam's a member coming to church. Morning, sir. I can see that you are obviously not wearing the uh, right clothing for today's... Uh, yeah, despicable. Yeah, well, thankfully, I have here the City Church Sheffield T-shirts. Now, we've brought in a new system 
where you can only be in this service if you are wearing the City Church Sheffield t-shirt. Lovely, isn't it? The, <laughs> the grey just suits everyone. Um, <laughs> it can be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, if you are to come into our service, you need to have this t-shirt. And today, I can sell it to you for one Jubilee Center pound. I know, I know. Um, of course, you could go home and uh, embroider one yourself, but let's be honest with those hands. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> but you're glad you volunteered. <laughs> we'll bullied into this. Um, so today's exchange rate is, of course, 20 of your great British pounds for one Jubilee Center pound. And then you can have this, and you can be part of us. But if not, on your way. I've not been welcome team trained, by the way. This isn't standard, uh, <laughs> standard stuff. Um, so, what do you think? Yeah, it's okay, you don't have to answer. Um, but, that, thank you, Sam. <laughs> uh, but, just a little bit of an example, trying to relate that actually, it provided quite an enclosed, expensive, elite group that it could make. So you can see why Jesus is getting angry. It doesn't stop there. It's not just about exchange rates and expensive animals. You see, this market was in the temple courts. Um, so the temple, if you don't know it, it was made up of like several expanding areas. You've got the, the holy place where the priests go. You've got the, the men's court. You've got the women's court, which is a little bit wider. And then you've got the Gentile court, which in the, uh, in the temple that Herod the Great built was actually huge, a really big area. And so the chief priests had gone, yeah, we've got a lot of space. Let's bung a market in it. The problem is, that's the only place that Gentiles could come to worship. So people who weren't Jewish, like me, would come to worship, would come to pray, and all of a sudden, there are cows, there are sheep, there's noise, there's poo, there's smell, there's, there's people trying to sell things. And I don't know about you, I probably couldn't concentrate. I couldn't pray. I couldn't really worship in that situation. So it's inhibiting people who are wanting to come to God. And also, although it's the Gentile court, they, by doing this, by putting cows in there, by putting sheep in there, the, the chief priests are essentially saying Gentiles are the equivalent of livestock. That's about, as, you know, that's about what they are worth to God. And again, the chief priests doing this, they just, they don't get God. You've got a holy God. You've got a God who talks a lot about purity. You've got a God who, you know, is, there's a certain degree of reverence in which you treat God. And moving a marker into his temple probably isn't doing it right. I think it's fair to say. And so, these combination of things, I think it's fair for Jesus to get angry. I think it's fair that the corruption, the greed, the injustice, the irreverence, and denying people access to God. I think that's, you know, I have more than enough to evoke a response. 
It's more than enough for Jesus to say, let's get these animals out of here. He, Jesus used the reeds that were for the animals themselves. He, he formed that into a whip. He kicked over the tables. He made a scene because he was full of zeal for the house of God. When he said, stop turning my father's house into a market, all of a sudden, we see why, G why John has used this as an example for Jesus' divinity. Jesus suddenly goes, my father's house. This is not a common way of a Jewish person in the first century referring to God. But he's overcome with zeal. He has an authority in which to do this, in which to clear out the courts. And actually, John and the disciples, they remember the psalm where it says, zeal for your house will consume me. They realize that Jesus' response was prophesied about hundreds of years before. But also, in the time John is writing this, the temple has been wiped out after a Roman sacking of Jerusalem. So there really, there couldn't be anybody else whose zeal for God's house had overcome them because the temple didn't exist anymore. It had been wiped out. So that's the first one. Second point, architectural arguments. Verses 18 to 22. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So, you've got to think Jesus has made a bit of a scene. Um, if you were arriving at the temple, all of a sudden cows and sheep are flooding out of the entrance. Um, you're going to be a bit worried. But also, he's removed a revenue stream, um, which is going to make people a bit grumpy. And so, the religious authorities, they come up to him and they go, Basically, who do you think you are? You know, what? And you've got, as the religious leaders, they thought of themselves as basically second to God because they were the people put in charge of the temple. They were the ones who could decide, you know, what went and what didn't go, for instance, a market or not. They, you know, they were up there. That's what they thought. And so they were saying, perform a sign. Show us that you have more authority than us, that you are from God or of God. Jesus, by doing that, is saying he is of a higher authority. By taking charge of the temple, he's saying he has responsibility for this. But, okay, authority makes a difference with this. Because essentially, Jesus clearing the temple courts, it's actually an act of tidying up. Um, I wish all tidying up was this one, but um, it is. Jesus, is. Jesus is clearing out the temple. He's, he's tidying it up. And so authority makes a difference when you're tidying up. If you were to go home after this service and you found out someone had broken into your house, 
and tidied it? <laughs> there'd, be a, there'd be an interesting response. You'd probably be a bit unnerved. You'd offended. Who's seen your house and decided this needs, you know, breaking and entering in order to tidy it? Um, but almost that, that, that sense of violation of someone else has been in your house and done it. Authority matters. Now, if you were to go home and find that your children had tidied the house, you'd probably also be unnerved, um, but you'd, you'd be pretty happy and almost proud as well. And because your kids have authority to tidy your house, generally, I imagine. Um, but it makes a difference. There is, there is a distinct and different response. And so when clearing the temple, authority matters. And Jesus is saying, I have that authority. So when they come up to him and say, give us a sign, show us that you have this authority, Jesus could say, well, I'm God. And they would not have responded well to it. Um, in fact, just read the rest of John. Um, so Jesus doesn't just outright say, I am God. Jesus comes back with a slightly cryptic response. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Which is quite an architectural argument. They, they think very literally, this huge temple, you're going to destroy it and rebuild it. It took, it took ages to build. But you see, Jesus, Jesus was relating his body to the temple. Now, the temple was where people went to meet with God. Now, Jesus relating his body to the temple, he's saying, you're meeting God. And again, if he'd said that outright, blasphemy, he'd have been stoned, he'd have been taken away, they'd have looked to kill him instantly. This wasn't the point for Jesus to reveal it so explicitly. But he's making that shift change. He's making the change from the Old Testament. We've got a building in Jerusalem where we meet with God too. We've got God amongst us. And so when the disciples were looking back on this, when after all that happened, after Jesus was crucified and raised to life, they suddenly went, do you remember? Do you remember when he said about the temple being destroyed and in three days being raised back up again. They suddenly went, he was talking about his body. He was talking about him. And so Jesus is saying is, you want to see my authority? Look to the cross. Look to my death and resurrection. You want to see that I am God? Look to that moment where death and sin were defeated. You want to see authority that I have? Look to that. That's the sign. Section three. Obvious omniscience. Verses 23-25. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And so we've had the temple clearing. We've had Jesus' discussion with the, the temple leaders. And now we kind of go into this bit after. It's during the Passover, and Jesus 
in Jerusalem is performing signs. Um, John doesn't say explicitly which ones, but from seeing Jesus in the gospel, probably healings, driving out demons, that kind of thing. People are getting to know the name Jesus. There's a, there's a buzz and there's a stir. And it's at a festival time. So that buzz and that stir is going to go out from Jerusalem. It's going to go out into the countryside. And so people, people believe in his name. When you say, you know, if you were in there, you're talking about Jesus, people would go, oh, I know that Jesus bloke. Yeah, he healed Jeff. Yeah, it was incredible. It's, uh, Jeff can see again. And so people, people would, um, Jeff isn't a first century Jewish name, by the way. Sorry, Jeff. Um, but uh, just that sense of word was building. But people didn't know who Jesus was. So they believed in his name. They knew there was something about Jesus, but they didn't know exactly who it was. And an example of this, um, sorry, I'm stealing a little bit from next week's preach, but um, Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and he goes, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus is kind of like, there's something of God about you. You know, we don't know exactly who or what you are. Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? Uh, they don't know. And again, Jesus doesn't just say, son of God. Yeah, he doesn't just go, I am God. Because Jesus knows all things. And he knows what is in everybody's heart. He knows how people will reject him. And in fact, John has kind of done it again. He let the cat out of the bag in, the, in chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. He, uh, he said, He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus knew people would reject him. He knew ultimately the cross where humanity, we would reject him. He knew where it was all going. He knew it was headed that way. And so how does this point to Jesus being God? Well, actually, Jesus isn't the one writing this. This isn't Jesus' autobiography. He hasn't sat down and written it. This is John writing about Jesus. This is someone who is around Jesus a lot. And this is John saying, we know that Jesus knew the heart of all people. It is obvious to the disciples that Jesus knows all things. He knows people's hearts. He knows how people respond. Jesus is not naive. And yet from all this time with Jesus... It is obvious to the disciples, he is God. He knows things that no ordinary man could know. And so we see three examples, three sections of why the disciples and John believed Jesus was God. And so the big question for us always comes, and so what? You know, what, what does it matter to us? That was 2,000 years ago. Well, firstly... I think the main principle still stands. Jesus is God. 
This is John showing us what it was like to have God himself as a man walk amongst them. He's showing us Jesus' responses being divine. And for us today, actually, Jesus, by his Spirit, is amongst us. Jesus still knows all things. But also, ultimately, in the same way, if you want to see the authority of Jesus, look to his cross. Look to where the Gospels culminate. Look to where Jesus gave himself to save us. But then also look to the resurrection where Jesus is coming back again. meant that sin was defeated. It meant that death, the obvious outcome of sin, was destroyed. If you want to see power, you want to see that Jesus is God, look to the cross. Secondly, I think this shows us that Jesus is passionate about his church. Now, follow my links. The temple in the Old Testament is where people went to meet with God. Jesus here, he's saying, my body is the temple. Meeting Jesus, you are meeting God. New Testament, Jesus has ascended. Holy Spirit is poured out on his church. We, cumulatively, individually, are temples of God. We are where people can come and meet with God because God inhabits us. God is amongst us. In the same way, Jesus cleared the temple courts because of reverence for God. I think Jesus today, in his church, he cares about purity. He cares about holiness. He cares about reverence for God. That hasn't changed. Jesus doesn't change. And so we as a people, fully believing in grace, we are still concerned about the purity of ourselves and the purity of, of his church. And then thirdly, I think, and this, this, I was praying about this before bringing this message. I feel this is something God wants to highlight. And I think brilliantly what Blessan was, was bringing, I think, helps with that. I think Jesus hates injustice. And anything that stops people coming to him. And just the way that, in the way that livestock, having a market in the the middle of church would probably distract us all horribly and we wouldn't be able to worship or come to God. I think in the same way in our lives, if there are things stopping us or hindering us coming to him, I think Jesus wants to clear them away. I think work, you know, workaholics, productivity, distractions, all those things that stop us waiting on God. I think God is passionate about clearing those out. I felt there was a few things God was highlighting as well. I feel um, if, if, you've ever been, if you've ever been hurt by a church and that stops you coming to God, well, the work of Jesus is big enough to deal with that. I think Jesus wants to welcome you. He wants to draw you in. He wants all those things that have hindered you coming to him to be moved out of the way. But also for people who you've had other people sin against you and that has inhibited you 
that stopped you seeing God as a father? That sin that someone else has committed against you, it, it makes it hard for you to trust God. I, I just want to say, I want to proclaim actually that the cross of Jesus and his work is big enough to deal not just with your sin, but the sins that other people have committed against you. Um, no sin is bigger than the work of Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you um, that God is greater. Um, okay, uh, we're going to welcome the band up again.